Welcome to AFT in Action, a podcast for members of AFT Connecticut-affiliated local unions. We're approximately 30,000 working people in the public and private sectors, teachers and school support staff, nurses and healthcare workers, higher education faculty and public employees in nearly 90 unions across the state. The series provides a deeper dive into issues impacting our members and our movement as part of AFT Connecticut's engagement and communications efforts. Welcome, sisters and brothers. My name is Jan Hockadell. I am the president of AFT Connecticut, and I am once again co-hosting another episode of AFT in Action. Today, I'm joined by Peter Canning, a member of our University Health Professionals Union, also known as UHP. Peter, welcome. I uh, asked you to co-host this latest episode because I understand you have extensive knowledge and experience in fighting the opioid epidemic. Um, You played a major role in launching the Connecticut Emergency Medical Service Opioid Reporting Project, which is a mouthful, but in that effort has brought together local EMS first responders and state public health officials to address this crisis. Plus, you've been involved in the statewide opioid summits, which are dedicated to finding holistic solutions to the epidemic. On top of that, you've written two autobiographies, plus two novels about EMS paramedics, and maintained the blog called Streetwatch, Notes of a Paramedic. And that's all in addition to your day job. You're the mobile intensive care coordinating supervisor in the emergency room at Yukon Health's John Dempsey Hospital in Farmington. Boy, I really appreciate you taking the time out to join me here today. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for thinking of me for this project. I'm always happy to talk about this crisis that's uh, so severe in our state and country. And that's uh, exactly what we're hoping to accomplish in this latest episode. Your expertise is going to be a big help in getting answers to our members' questions. In fact, we've been sharing news coverage of your work with the EMS Opioid Reporting Project over the past year on our social media channels. And for our members who haven't been following its development, can you share a bit about how it got off the ground? Sure, Jan. Um, I've been a paramedic in Hartford for over 25 years now. And when I started, like many people, I thought that people who used drugs and overdosed had a character flaw. I came to see that addiction was a, a chronic relapsing brain disease and that you know these people really needed our help. So in EMS, rather than just reversing their overdose and taking them to the hospital, I started thinking of other ways that we could help them. So I've been working very hard on trying to educate people about addiction um, and particularly um, to take advantage of some of the things that EMS can do. When somebody overdoses now, rather than saying just say no, we teach some of them how to, to stay alive, how to use safely. If they're ready for, uh, for rehab or treatment, we offer them the resources where they can get them. But if they're gonna keep using, we make certain they know where to get clean syringes, where to have, you know, where they can get naloxone to never use alone, because dead people don't don't make good decisions. And as long as we can, people can keep these people alive and keep them, you know, feeling a part of our community, the time may come when they'll be able to recover. At the same time, our national union has also been responding to the needs of members dealing with the crisis. AFT has an online e-learning course developed with the Harvard Medical School, and the goal is to help local affiliates identify and advocate for proper uh, prevention and treatment programs in their communities, just as you were speaking about. Right, Jan. And for healthcare professionals, the epidemic is more than just about treating our patients and supporting their families. A recent Centers for Disease Control study ranked bedside support staff fifth among occupations for opioid overdose deaths. Anyone that works with us, anything could happen 
where you can suddenly find yourself on the other side of the stretcher, on the other side of the, of the healthcare provider. And, you know, we're all brothers and we need to, to work together. And that's why we've asked someone who is taking on the corporate interest responsible for the crisis to join us for this episode. And I am so thrilled that Connecticut Attorney General William Tong, who has been extremely active in this area, has agreed to share his efforts. William, you were elected in your current position this past fall, and you just immediately emerged as a national leader in holding the addiction industry accountable. And I'm so proud to add that members of three of our locals are an important part of your team. That's our administrative and residual employees known as ANR, our Association of Connecticut Assistant Attorneys Generals, or AAGs, and our Managerial and Exempt Employees United, also known as M&E. So, William, welcome to AFT in Action, and we appreciate you making the time to answer our members' questions, and thank you for hosting Peter and I here at your new office in Hartford. Yeah, you just rattled off my entire office except for me. I'm probably <laughs> the only non-member of AFT we in this office. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> Organizing constitutional officers, that's a new frontier. We welcome you, and let me just start out first by saying um, thank you to... AFT and to your members in the various units that are here in the Attorney General's office. Um, and as you know, um, just a couple of years ago, organized lawyers in this office and one of the few places in this country where lawyers are organized in, in an office of the Attorney General. So um, I'm really grateful for the work of everybody um, and all the work that they do. And I couldn't do any of it without um, this office, which has such a strong reputation across the country. And I can speak for our members in saying they really appreciate the great leadership um, that you've been doing, and we're really looking forward to hearing more about what your office is doing to combat the um, opioid epidemic. So, but let's first um, talk about what brought you into this fight. Um, prior to your current office, um, you represented Stanford for 12 years in the General Assembly, including four of them as um, the Judiciary Committee co-chair in the House of Representatives. Can you share what motivated you to seek the public office in the first place? I was born and raised in the Hartford area. I come from working people. My parents uh, are immigrants, and they ran a Chinese restaurant. I worked side by side with my parents nights and weekends, starting, you know, maybe fifth grade, sixth grade, and there was this window in a door between the kitchen and the dining room, and I was just always mindful of this diamond-shaped window. Um, while I was working in the kitchen, I could always look through that window and I would see people in the dining room who we were serving, um, and, and I was always mindful of that barrier. I always had a sense that I had to kick that door in and get into the dining room myself and, and not just figuratively, but literally get a seat at the table. That's great, William. You've already accomplished quite a bit in your first year as Attorney General. Some have said that by taking on the addiction industry, you've elevated the role beyond simply serving as the state's top lawyer. Can you talk about why you chose to serve as Attorney General? Well, I think so many of us right now feel like we have a target on our backs. You know, if you're a member of a labor union, um, after Janice and all that um, the Trump administration is doing down in Washington um, in trying to curtail protections that workers have. You know, state attorneys general on the front lines fighting for working people. I think the attorney general is in many ways the firewall. The 315 people in this office, 
largely AFT members, we're the firewall to protect our way of life. And there are, you talked about corporate interests when we started. I think living in America today and trying to raise a family or run a business or hold down a job, it means that there are these tremendously powerful forces bearing down on you every day, right? We are sometimes the only thing standing between those powerful interests and the people in this state. And it's a really important role, and I'm, I'm honored to do it. And that really helps explain why you've taken on such a strong stand to fight the opioid crisis. Yeah. So let's dig in on our topic and talk about what's being done to protect Connecticut working families from this addiction industry, as you put it. What inspired you to take on the opioids and the corporate bad actors um, profiting from them? So uh, the addiction industry is exhibit A when I talk about those powerful forces bearing down on us every day. All throughout this system, um, together, even if one particular particular link in the chain isn't culpable or doing something bad um, in a particular instance, it all forms one organism that I call the addiction industry that makes money off of people's addiction and, and their misery and the misery of their families. And you see that in Connecticut. We lost a, a thousand people in 2019, um, more than a thousand, and, and we lost roughly the same number in 2018. And it cost this state $10 billion or more a year. And you multiply that 57 times states, territories, districts across this country, and the cost to the American people is immeasurable. Mm -hmm. And some of the really bad actors like Purdue. We're a long way away from making medicine for people, right? Um, the way I describe the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma is, yeah, they might have started out with science and making medicine to help people with pain management. And no one's saying that you can't make an investment, create a product, sell it, and make money. But um, it, it soon began to unmoor itself from that original purpose. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty clear that the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma started pushing pills um, dealing drugs, and, and I use those descriptions very purposefully, to try to get people um, to buy more of, of uh, OxyContin and the drugs that they're selling and uh, thereby cause addiction. A growing and highly dependent customer base. Um, and that fueled a public health crisis that is the worst I've ever seen in my lifetime. And and the way I describe it is that the, the Sacklers, you know, they started this fire. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing what they can to make it right and to try to put it out, right now they're content to watch it burn. Can you talk about how the lawsuit holds Purdue, Purdue Pharma particularly accountable for their role? When Senator Blumenthal was attorney general um, working with the federal government, we... Uh, went after Purdue for unfair and deceptive marketing practices. We knew that they were um, that they were out there misrepresenting the addictive nature of their product, trying to get more people to buy pills, pushing pills through um, um, bad actor doctors and pharmacies, where you're seeing you know very high levels of of pills and prescriptions and distribution where you know, way beyond what any particular one patient or community would need. Um, and, and because of that, uh, and because of the actions taken by Attorney General Blumenthal at the time, um, Purdue Pharma pled guilty to federal criminal charges in 2007. 
Um, and that should have been the end of it, but um, it wasn't, and it got worse. What we're saying is after 2007, they knew they had a problem, and they didn't respond. In fact, they went the other way, and they took money out of the company knowing they had a problem, billions of dollars, and I believe they fraudulently conveyed that money to themselves to shield those assets from the lawsuits that would eventually ensue like the one that Connecticut now has against Purdue and against the Sacklers. Which um, leads us to our first member's question. Um, Heather is a healthcare professional in Norwich, and she called into our podcast li- listener's line. I've seen comparisons of the legal action against opioid manufacturers to the multi-state lawsuit against big tobacco in the 1980s. What are the similarities or differences in what's being done to solve this latest addiction crisis? You have this model that we created, the states created with tobacco. Uh, And the model loosely described is states coming together using consumer protection laws, which is what is at the heart of our actions. These are consumer protection actions and taking on big, powerful forces. And um, we did that with tobacco, and we were very successful in doing that. Um, And because of that, smoking has been cut in half in in the 20-plus years since uh, that settlement took place. That being said, two things. One is, I think it's fair to say one of the mistakes of that era was that not enough money was focused on um, smoking cessation and fighting smoking uh, as a public health crisis. And even though it has dropped considerably, much of that money uh and it's a lot of it, $128 million this year alone, 20 years in to the state of Connecticut. Um, That's all going to the general fund. You know, it's not going into the tobacco account. And I think that's a missed opportunity and a mistake, and I think a lot of people see it that way. The other thing uh, is, and that's the $128 million tells a different story, which is the money in the tobacco industry and the size of that industry is so much bigger than the opioid industry. And so people have these outsized visions of if we do enter into a settlement or a resolution or we get a damages award, that it's going to be just like tobacco. It's not. Tobacco was just that much bigger, like exponentially bigger, still is bigger. That's how the industry can afford to pay $128 million a year to one state, never mind the 45 others that are participating So um, Purdue Pharma is nowhere near that size. It's it's a two to three billion dollar company, maybe, right? Um, The distributors are much bigger, but the size of the industry is a lot smaller than the tobacco industry, and so I think people need to readjust their expectations around how big the dollars are going to be. That's very helpful background, William. It's a perfect lead into our next member's question, which was sent to the podcast email inbox. Michael, a state employee from Manchester, asked, will all the Sacklers' profits be clawed back, or will they be able to keep some of their vast wealth made from opioids? We're trying. Um, I don't think you'll ever get all of it. You know, a family like the Sacklers um, have tremendous resources. They have the best lawyers uh, and accountants and tax professionals um, that money can buy. And so, you know, I think it's fair to say um, a good amount of their wealth is probably hidden somewhere or secreted away, and um, they've been smart about it. Uh, but 
Uh, I think what they did not anticipate is that state attorneys general would come together and would focus on them specifically and that we would argue that uh, you're taking money out of the company after you knew you had a problem was fraudulent. And it was done to defeat uh, the claims of, of the victims who would come later and who need that money for addiction science treatment and prevention. So let's wrap up by um, talking about how labor unions and our members can help um, ending this epidemic, if you will. Um, We presented your recent video message at our latest uh, joint meeting of AFT Connecticut's Executive Committee and Delegate Assembly, and it really led to a robust discussion about, you know, what should we be doing as a state federation? You know, what are your thoughts um, about ways that working people can be part of the solution? I think it's really critical, and, and I, I want to thank AFT for your leadership. The Carpenters are also very active in this space. A number of labor organizations and unions are focused what they should be focused on, which is the health of their members. And um, in many ways, you know, the legal fight, you leave that to me, mm-hmm. right? We'll take that part of it. Um, and um, healthcare providers will do their part, and we'll make sure that we do as much as we can to make sure they have resources to treat people and have the right medication to treat people. But the problem is with with people who um, face these challenges, who suffer from addiction, who are flirting with addiction because uh, they're overprescribed medication or um, they're not doing enough to help themselves, it's really important that you have programs, structured programs to reach out to members, not just to educate, but, but to really encourage them to seek help when they need it and to overcome the stigma. I think you've got to create a culture where it's okay to, to ask for help and it's okay uh, to stick out your hand and say, can I be helpful? We're really looking forward to working with you on this front. Um, our podcast audience will better understand why, as a union, we're partnering together on this fight You know, for the health of our members, as you said. So we really appreciate you answering their questions and offering your insights. And thank you for hosting us here in your office. Thank you. Too. Thank you. Come back anytime. Peter, I also want to thank you for joining me as co-host. Your experience really helped inform the discussion and give it some really important context. Thanks, Jan. I appreciate the invitation, and it was great to get to meet uh, Attorney Tong. Uh, I was struck by the story that he told of, of working in the kitchen as a young boy and looking through the, the glass and wanting a seat at the table. And it's so refreshing to know that now that he is at a seat, you know, he's there not just for himself, but he's representing the voice of those who don't have the power, and he's bringing the voice of the working people to the, to the halls of power. And that's something that all of us in the unions can do. And seeing the effects of the epidemic on the streets and in our hospitals motivates me to do as much as I can. Having my sisters and brothers in labor at my side is a great example of the you and I in union giving us strength. I couldn't agree with you more, Peter. Finally, I want to thank you, our members, for listening to this latest episode of AFT in Action. I hope you found it inspiring in spite of the crisis facing Connecticut and the country. I also want to invite your questions for the next episode, which will focus on how private sector nonprofit hospitals impact state and local budgets. Please send your comments by email to actnetreply at aftct.org. That's A-C-T-N-E-T-R-E-P-L-Y at sign aftct.org. Plus, you can leave a voice message by dialing 
860-257-9782 and asking for extension 116. That's 860-257-9782, extension 116. I'm looking forward to including your voices and thank you as always in advance for being heard. That's a wrap for this latest edition of AFT in Action. Additional episodes are available at our Podbean page and social media channels, all of which can be found at aftct.org. Like what you heard? Then share with fellow members and encourage they give it a listen too, and help build the power of the UNI in union. <laughs>